marriage. It's what brings us together today. Okay, just kidding. Uh, so one of my good lines from a great movie, um, The Princess Bride. So uh, if, if you're, if you're uh, with us this morning, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, and it's always a little bit, we're a little bit, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, difficult sometimes to just jump into uh, the middle of a, a book and just say, hey, we're jumping in, we're just going to drop in the middle of this book, and we're going to look at what God has to say about a certain topic. So anytime that I approach a series topically, I, I do it with a little bit of trepidation. Um, Ephesians was a book, and it was a collection of a book to be studied together. Um, and obviously there's principles and different things that we can look at. But even if you look at the beginning of chapter 5, look at verse 1. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul has been engaging this body of believers with the gospel, this mystery really of the gospel to the Gentile world and to the world, this manifold wisdom that we see in chapter 3. In chapter 2, we have this great explanation of grace by faith, that it is a gift of God, that salvation is not of works, lest we should boast. And so, as we get to chapter 5, I want us to help us see that really what Paul is getting at, even when he approaches this great subject of marriage, that he's approaching it from a place of walking in the Spirit, the Spirit-filled life, and how the Spirit-filled life flows into a Spirit-filled marriage. And so, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want us to read it together. We're actually going to study it over the next three weeks. So today we're going to look at it from a one angle. And then next week we're looking at it at a different angle. We're going to put some application with it along the ways of how can we really practically put some of the principles that we're going to look at today and put those into practice in our marriages and in our homes. And for those, I, had my, uh, I was seeing my guys choir over here. Of the, <laughs> Cameron was over here as well <laughs> and uh, sitting with my son and um, Ryan. And they were sitting over there, and I'm like, man, they got the youth choir over here singing. Uh, it wasn't maybe the strongest voices over there. I was like looking for it. And, uh, but I know they're like so excited about this topic too this morning on marriage. Uh, but uh, something that I, is so important because hopefully one day God is going to bring uh, a spouse to you, and there's a lot of principles that we can learn uh, from Scripture. So some of you have been married for years. Others of you have gone through divorce. Others of you are in the throes of marriage, and you're trying to figure out parenting, and you're trying to figure out life. And others of you are single and considering marriage, or maybe you're like, I'm single and I wish I was married, but I'm not. Or maybe you're like, all I've seen is a lot of broken marriages, and there's no way I would ever want to be married. I want us to look at this topic uh, with the fresh eyes and perspective uh, from Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, and then I'm going to take us to Genesis 2, and then we'll launch into uh, the content of our uh, message this morning. So if you have a Bible, um, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So far, <laughs> so far as you read this from Paul, uh, this does not go with culture. You're like, submission is like the evil word <laughs> in our culture, in anything, not just in a marriage, but in any area of life. You're like, 
submissions is like weakness. It seems like it's, it's like, no, I, we're in the age of freedom. I can do what I want. I can do whatever I want. And so our culture doesn't like this. I was telling someone this morning as I was, I've been studying this for, for a while now, but is locking in a little bit more on this passage this week. Um, uh, I couldn't help but read in this one commentary, you know, that's written in the 90s or something, um, you know, so long ago, like 20, it's crazy though, and you're like, get in the 90s, and you're like, that really was a long time ago. Um, crazy to think, uh, for some of you who weren't even born yet, so, um, but in the 90s, and this, and this commentary was talking about, like, as you approach this subject with such trepidation, because it's so countercultural, and I'm going like, that was, that was in the 90s he was saying that it was counterculture. What do you think it is today? Um, even in the, in the Southern Baptist Church right now, they're faced with a lot of questions around the, the, the view of roles uh, in the home, but not in the home, but also in the church. And, uh, and we do approach this with, uh, with a, a little bit of trepidation, but also with looking at God's Word and what He has to say. So when you read this, you're like, ugh, <laughs> you know, submission, wives, submit to your own husbands. Uh, you know, and, and as he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, and you're going like, what is all of this? But I want you to see that he only uses these couple verses to talk about the wife, and then he spends a whole lot of time talking to the husband. And even if you look at verse 21, I didn't read it this morning, if he says, it says this, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. We see a mutual submission as well, ultimately, to Christ Jesus. And now we see this picture that's said to the husband in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, still talking to husbands here, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, quote scripture here, we're going to look at this passage in a second in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, <laughs> I love Paul, this mystery is profound, <laughs> the mystery of marriage. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's given us a picture of what marriage looks like. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. How many times is the husband being told to do this? However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If you'll turn with me, look at Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read this together as well, and then we're going to um, dive into our points this morning. Genesis 2. Creation account. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates everything. He's creating this beautiful place for man to dwell with God. There is, I think it just, just I, want, I want you to set the scene for this. As a, all of us most likely have read this past scripture or at least heard it before. Um, but this is really the first marriage ceremony that we have. 
First of all, we look at marriage. One of the things, and this isn't in your notes necessarily, but marriage was instituted by God. This is not a man-made institution. This isn't something that we made up, like a civic club, Kiwanis, or something else. Like, no, those are all man-made things in society. We make those things. This is something that God instituted, and here he institutes it in a way that's really interesting. And I want you to see this. This is so important. This really opened my eyes, and I've, again, I've studied these passages. I've read my Bible through and through several times over the years. But for some reason, this time it really captured my attention uh, for the first time, I would say, really in this way. Because God has created everything, and every time he creates something, what does he say? You remember, what does he say? He made everything, sun, moon, and the stars, and the first day he created all these things. And then what did he say at the very end of the day? Help me, right? He says, and he created all these things, and he said, it was good. And then he goes and he creates the next thing, and he says, it is good. And he creates the next thing, he's good. I mean, God has created everything. And so if we're made, just think of this, he makes Adam, and it's good, but then this picture of man with God, it should be this perfect relationship. There's man and there's God. There's animals that he can enjoy. There's all these things that he can enjoy in life and all these things. But he looks at the man. He's made the man. He's made a person. In verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Let that sink in for a second. God created man to have relationship even with himself, that he is giving of himself. God is to man to join in relationship with him. This is the Garden of Eden. It's perfect. It's sinless. And yet he looks at man and he says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And I'll just pause on the Hebrew word helper here for a second. Helper is not like she, is she, this, this woman is just going to be a helper to do everything for him that he doesn't want to do. This isn't what this word means. Helper, actually, this same Hebrew word is the word that's used as for God himself as a helper, the Holy Spirit being God. But also we see that picture of God being our helper. And it's not like God comes to just serve our needs. No, he joins us in mission. He lavishes himself for us. He helps. He completes. He fulfills us. This is more of a completion and a fulfilling of, not a just come and serve me helper. <laughs> like, let me get a, a, a hired hand to help me with my chores. No, this is not what is described here when he says a helper fit for him. Notice verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And again, not just a helper. This is like a companion. This is what we're going to see in a second of, of friendship, of relationship, of what we're going to see is oneness of a relationship that only happens through a man and a woman as God designs it. So the Lord God, in verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man, and then the first song that is sung. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we get this first marriage ceremony. Now they have two people. We have two perfectly created beings, a male and a female, a man and a woman, Adam 
and Eve. And then here's what God declares in this marriage ceremony. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is pre-fall that we have in chapter 3 coming to us. But here we see this picture of a marriage. So the question first, and this is really the addressing question for this morning with God's design for marriage, is, is what is marriage? And what, what does that mean? Is it, a, is it just a commitment? Is, it, is a ring make you, putting a ring on a finger in front of a bunch of people, does that make a marriage? Does signing a certificate make one married? Can you just say something? Can you do something? Is it an act? What, what is marriage? And first, I want us to see this, and you can go back to Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll stay, so you can feel free, feel free to go back there and just we'll hang out there uh, in chapter 5 for the next few weeks, really. First, I want us to see this this morning, that marriage is a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Now look at verse 31 in Ephesians 5. It says this, Starting in verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ and the church, because we are members of the body. Therefore, verse 30, 31, therefore a man, quoting what we just read, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What we see in this picture of marriage is first and foremost that it is a covenant. This is, and what would you say, like, what is a covenant relationship. What are these, you're like, you're like wondering, maybe when I've, when I've attended a, mar- a wedding ceremony, you've been in a wedding ceremony, if you're married, there's these, there's these few statements that are said by the pastor, right? There's, there's the ones that are the vows, and, and so we have vows. Some people write their own vows, whether you wrote your own vows or the pastor just gave you or you found some online, Google, or nowadays chat, you know, just chat, hey, can you give me a really good humorous, we've been talking about chat, GD, how do you say it, GPD, something like that, GP. GPT, yes. You know, all the AI stuff nowadays, they can do anything for you. It's like, hey, give me a sermon introduction. They'll they'll spit one out for you. You want uh, vows for your wedding. Maybe maybe AI can give you amazing vows. I I don't don't know. I haven't tried the vow one. But, but, you know, you you, you hear these vows. What what do these vows even mean? What is its purpose behind them? You see, you can make some, you can make some statements, but a, a, a vow is going before God and other people and vowing to commit. It's promises kept. But here's what a lot of people do, right? We look at a ceremony, and these two, this couple is, is they're, what we quote is madly in love. And, you're, and for those of you that have been married a long time, you're like, they have no idea. Madly in love. <laughs> They have no idea what's, what's, what's in store, the challenges, but the growth. Like, they think they love each other now. Wait for 10 years and the depth of love that we have, or 20 years or 30 years further. You see, vows are not just about like, hey, I'm gonna, I love you right now. No, vows are, I will love you in 20, 30, 40, 50, till my last breath. Vows. It's commitments. It's looking in the distance it isn't even really about the wedding day, that moment. The vows are looking way down the road and saying, I will still pursue you. I love you. You see, when couples first, quote, fall in love, they think they love the person. But to be pretty frank, 
you love at first sight, you know, this love at first sight isn't really a thing. Let's be real. You don't even know the person yet. You hardly even know someone. You're just scratching the surface of that person. That doesn't mean that they aren't, that you shouldn't marry them. It doesn't just because you're like, well, I don't know. I've got this, this little feeling I get every once in a while when I'm around this person. They make me happy. I'm excited about them. All those things are great. They're things, you know, looking for that spark that we talk about. But I love how Tim Keller does a really a masterful job of explaining this in the book uh, that he's written with his wife. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. I will entrust it to you. A lot of the series and uh, in, in my views on marriage really come from about a few different people. But Tim Keller, uh, his book, Meaning of Marriage, and then also um, Paul David Tripp, what used to be called What Did You Expect, is now uh, titled Marriage. We sell the marriage one uh, out in the, the lobby. It's pretty expensive online. I think we sell it for $10. I think it's like $20 book or something like that. So feel free to grab one. Uh, that is really kind of, in a way, our gift to you because I know it's a lot more expensive uh, online. But these are some amazing resources, and a lot of my, of my focus and my understanding of marriage really have, I, I, I owe them a great debt uh, from all that they have written on it. But Tim Keller really does a masterful job of explaining this in his book with his wife Kathy in The Meaning of Marriage. And he says, what happens is that you love your idea of the person. When you're first getting to know someone and you're, and you're quote, falling in love, really what you're doing is you love the idea of that person. Like, and what, what he means by that is that you have this picture of what they look like and what you think they are. But what happens when those things change? What happens when uh, you've had five children and, and the body starts changing or as you age and you start letting yourself go and all those things? What happens if, like, if that was what drew you together was attraction and you just, man, she's beautiful and he's handsome and all these things, but all of a sudden those things fade away as time goes on? What do you have his point is that, is that we have this picture of what someone looks like. And here's the thing, though, is this. Oftentimes, it's, as Paul Tripp says as well, it's a self-love. You might be like, well, what does that mean? What does he mean by self-love? What is self-love? Well, self-love is, man, this person, it's, it's when you say, like, man, this person, they meet our, my needs. Like, you know, I don't know how to cook, but she can cook. This is great. <laughs> she is beautiful to my eyes. This is great. She, 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 uh, or he um, is the perfect picture of what I've always thought and dreamed of in a husband or a wife. And they, they, pit this, they, they, they fit this picture for you. And so you're falling in love, really. It's a self-love, as Paul Tripp puts it. And then the expectation is you're going to take two sinful people, put them in a home together, who've lived their lives doing what, they're, doing what they want, living their own ways, and then all of a sudden you're going to put them in a home, and you're going to take these two self-centered people, and you're going to try to just, and it's just going to work magic. It's going to be beautiful. Everything's going to be great. I've done a lot of pre-marriage counseling, and um, I used to use the book, What Did You Expect? But I think they always looked at me funny, like, like no, we don't have that problem. No, we don't have that problem. No, we're great. Everything's great. And, our, and I'm like, okay, Let's maybe do that book year one. <laughs> You've been married a year. Now we'll look at this book together. Um, so I switched to Tying the Knot is a really good resource as well for pre-marriage, uh, a book to read as well. But the, the point is this, is we, we can easily get caught up in the things, and there's this important thing that's going to, what's going to keep your relationship strong through it? It's the covenant. It's the commitment because guess what? Tim Keller, many other authors and all kinds of people and myself included, there's days where you just fall out of like. <laughs> like I don't like this person very much. They're, they have 
They're in the way of what I want, that self-centeredness that creeps into our hearts. They're in the way, and that spouse is in the way of what you want. And so there's days where you're like, I don't like you very much. We just like, let's, let's just kind of separate for a bit. Let's, let's just get, go, you go one way, go one way, and we're going to, because you want to just live your life the way you want to. What is going to endure is the covenant relationship. And really, there's two kinds of relationships. I've, I've heard this in, in, in Meaning of Marriage, and I've heard it in a few different sermons as well. I think they've all picked it up from Tim Keller as well. But talking about, really, there's two types of relationships in this world. There's really, there's covenant relationships, the one we're talking about this morning, but there's also consumer relationships, and most of our relationships are consumer relationships. And think about this, when you go to the store, right, that you're, you're consuming a product, and so I have this nice relationship with Amazon, for instance, right? Most of us have a good, good working relationship. It's great. We order stuff, they deliver it to our porch. It's amazing, Right? Um, and usually they uh, have great prices. So like for me, for instance, I used to love Best Buy. Uh, I, I love electronics. I love, I love tech and those kind of things. And so I would always go to Best Buy because it's just like I could look at their stuff. And then uh, I would, I, I, again, I love phones. I love technology, all these kind of things, music and different things and stereos and all this stuff. And so I'd go and I would purchase things and I would go there. And so as long as they had good prices, It'd be great. I'll go there and buy them. But you know what? I hardly ever go to Best Buy anymore because Best Buy doesn't meet my needs anymore. I gave up. I kind of gave up on them. I went with Amazon because Amazon had better prices and I don't even have to go to the store. (laughs) It's pretty. And then like now they do drop off. I can just drop it off at Kohl's and Kohl's is just like, here you go. Here's a coupon for dropping it off, returning something. It's really, it's really remarkable. But think about it. It's I, and here's how these consumer relationships work. You provide a service to me and you just keep the customer happy, then I'm happy. This is great. Guess what? I cheat all the time on my gas station <laughs> because I don't care which gas station I go to. I just want the gas station that has the cheapest price. It doesn't matter to me which one I go to. I'm not like, man, I'm indebted to QT. Uh, I, I love QT and all, but I've not gone into kind of con- co- covenant relationship with QT. If Exxon has lower prices, that's where I'm going. And here's the problem is we've put that, culture has put that into marriage, that kind of consumer mentality. You don't, meet, you don't meet my needs anymore, and so I'll move on to something better. As long as you meet my needs, we can stay together. This will be great. Now people try to have prenups. Prenups are not covenant relationships. Covenant is making a promise. You're saying, I make a promise, but strong conditions. We're preparing for failure already at the beginning of a relationship. You see, a covenant relationship is a commitment. It's looking to the future and saying, I promise through thick and thin, through trial, suffering, sickness, health, days where I don't like you, to continue to love you. And and Tim Keller, in this book, Meaning of Marriage, he talks about how, how we do this, this covenant relationship with our children. We don't, this is a relationship we never, in our culture today, that you just abandon children. It's looked down on to abandon children. You don't, you don't, we don't say, well, this child has gotten in the way of my needs and my wants. This child is in the, in the way of the, the life that I wanted to live. And so I just want to discard this, channel, this, this child. And no, we look down on that. We see that as wrong because, no, it's your child. You should care for it. Care for your child. Love your child. Meet their needs. Even though they may not meet your needs, you continue to love them. But what happens through those first years of a lot of tears, 
a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of frustration. You keep loving that child. What happens? Your heart starts to melt with it. There's days where you're like, I don't like this child. I was hearing about it yesterday from, from Austin and Jen. There was a day where they're like, this Landon was a terror all day, right? And it's just like, I don't like this child anymore. But what happens? It's not like, oh man, I'm done with you. Okay, you don't meet my needs. You're not making me happy. You're not going and getting me stuff. You're not doing these things. No, we look down on that. But yet in a marriage, we take the opposite approach. We say, well, if this person's not meeting your needs anymore, then you can just move on to something better. Now, see, first, what God is instituting is this covenant relationship. If you read Matthew um, uh, 18 and 19, as you look at this, as, as Jesus institutes and he talks about marriage, uh, he talks about divorce, and he talks about how a person can divorce, because people looked at that day. There was two, ty- two types of thoughts in the day about divorce and, and marriage. There was the ones who were very conservative, and their conservative approach was you could only in certain cases. They, need to be very, they were very specific on the certain cases. And then there was the, the very liberal approach was like, hey, if this person, literally the, the, the man that was quoted, the, the, um, the rabbi who was uh, quoted in the day was Hillel, um, was quoted as saying, like, even if they burned your toast, you could divorce them. And so the disciples and their people are asking Jesus, well, what do, what is, can a person just, because you allowed Moses, Moses in the Old Testament gave people a certificate of divorce for various reasons, so then what do you say? And Jesus took it a step further and says, really strong language. And he speaks about the importance of marriage and the, and the union of marriage. And he says, divorce really only happens in one circumstance. And he describes it as one who's been unfaithful uh, to their spouse in infidelity and sexual sin. And he says, that, he gives this exception clause. And they look at, and the disciples look at him with amazement. They're like, this is hard saying. <laughs> they're like, then why would anyone ever get married is basically what they're saying. It's too difficult. Because Jesus took even the conservative approach and took it even further and said, you see, God's design for marriage was a covenant relationship. And you'd say, well, why is that God's picture for marriage? Why is it so important in valuing the, the, the length and the, the enduring through hardship, the covenant relationship? It's because of the next point. And I want you to look at this. Is not, not only is marriage a covenant relationship, marriage is meant to reflect the gospel. You see, marriage is meant to reflect the gospel. You see, wives in this passage here, you know, in, in the submission section where it says, wives, submit to your, own, your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even, notice this, here's the language we get, even as Christ is the head of the church. You see, wives give a picture, they reflect the gospel, they give a picture of how the church relates to the world and how they relate to God in loving submission to Christ's leadership in the lives of the church. You see, the church is to submit to Christ as the head of the church. Um, last week, uh, when Al Potter was with us, he referred to me as the under-shepherd. See, a, even a, a lead pastor of a local body of believers is not the head of the church. There's not pope uh, in, the, in the church. There's not someone who's the head of the church. No, we believe Christ is the head of the church. And, and there's under-shepherds. We're under the great shepherd, the good shepherd. And so husbands are this picture as well. So wives give a picture of the church and Christ and how we are to submit to his leadership. Husbands are given a picture of Christ to the world. Listen to some of the, the language he uses. Christ, what does he say? Christ loved the church. Christ gave himself up for her. 
Christ sanctified her. He cleansed her. He presents her. He provides and cares for the church. You see, husbands, we are called to die to self, sacrificing even our good ambitions for the good of our spouse. We're to run from temptation, avoid the pitfalls of lust and anger and pride. See, marriage is a means of serving one another. It's a picture of the gospel. What is the gospel? I mean, look at it, what it describes in verse 25. I want to read it again. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. He literally gives of himself. He, as Philippians put it, he is emptying himself. He comes and he says, I didn't come to be served, but rather to serve. Christ, in in this picture of the gospel, is the gospel is Jesus takes my place. He stands in the gap for me. He, He takes on the punishment of sin for me. The gospel is the good news of Christ coming and being the atoning sacrifice, the payment for sins. Now, obviously, husbands, we cannot die for our spouses spiritually. We can't take their place. Wives, you can't save your husband. Husbands, you cannot save your wives. You can't, or wife, you cannot, not wives, not multiple. Um, you know, you, if we can't, had, what our, uh, one of the guys I worked with in college, when he'd always pray, he'd say, and we pray for our wives or wives or something like that. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't. It's like we all have just one wife um, and, and stuff. And so, but th- this picture here is that Christ comes and he, and he loves the church. He gives, he sanctifies, he cleanses. And these are all the picture that we get of marriage, of these two becoming one in a covenant relationship, a commitment of, of, of love and sacrifice, of putting aside the, the needs of self and saying, I'm going to live for another. This is the picture of the gospel. But don't you see how the gospel is also leads into our, our third and final point is that marriage is a means of spiritual growth. It's probably one of the biggest aspects of a marriage that's for our benefit and for our good. Yes, there's joy, there's mutual companionship and friendship, there's relationship, there's the joy of doing life with someone. But I can tell you to this day, I, I, I was talking to someone recently about this, I, I know that I am a much better person because of my wife. That left to myself, I know there's plenty of pitfalls and traps and and sins that I just can naturally be bent towards. And it can feed my self-centeredness. It's just because that's who we are. We're self-centered people. We gladly will live for selves. We love to provide for ourselves. But there's something about marriage that causes sacrifice. It causes us to give. But it also reveals blind spots. Um, if my wife, she stays at home, thankfully, and that does not mean that she is at all lazy. She does more than me half the time, and maybe more than half the time, actually, all the time, probably. She's always doing more than me um, in some way or another. But like our, with, with the three children and with our daughter, Grayson, with special needs, I mean, literally, our week is a lot of, I say our, it's ours, but the burden is often carried with Amanda of 
going this place and that therapy and going 40 minutes one way, coming back, going again and coming back. So three hours in a car, almost at least th- about three times a week just for Graceland and then try to come home and immediately get home and jump into homeschool with the kids and then to the next thing. And there's all these busy things. So she has a lot going on. So I'm hoping she continues to stay at home. Uh, there's a lot that goes there. But if she ever had another job, I think another good job for her, uh, she's really good at noticing flaws and, and, <laughs> and I knew I was like, I did not run this one by her. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to hear about this later. She's really good at noticing flaws and things. Not, I mean, yes, in me, but with my clothing. <laughs> See, you laughed before. You didn't know I was going to say clothing. You thought I was assuming it was just me. It is me too. Um, but like she knows, like it's, it's incredible. She's always like sticking her finger in a hole in my shirt. I'm like, where'd this hole come from? But she sees it. She notices different things. I mean, she would be a great, I think she really would be a great editor, uh, noticing the, the mistakes in those things. She has a keen eye for, she's very meticulous. But I'm also super grateful for that. I don't mean that she's, uh, she's not nitpicking at me or she's not hounding on me, but she is always seeking my good. So like today, she's probably going to, after the, today's message, she's going to be like, you know, that illustration wasn't so great, Eric. You probably should have done a different one. But she, you know, or, or she's gonna. She she notices. She's not saying this to make me feel like, oh man, I'm defeated, I'm deflated, defeated. No, she's seeking my good and saying, like, look, stop talking about that. Talk about this. Or hey, notice this about you and these things about you. I'm not just gonna look at her anymore. I'm just gonna look at everyone else in the room for the rest of the time. Um, but my my point is this: is marriage is a means of spiritual growth. That they, your spouse, should see the blind spots in your life that you don't see. They see where you may be drifting, where your attitudes become a little cold. You see, God's design, and even from the very beginning, he said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, a companion to, to really complete the man. You see, God has given us marriage, and it is a means of spiritual transformation. But I, I think we can pick on that, but I want you to see it in this passage. See the, the weight of it in this passage. Look at it with me. He continues on in verse, 20, in verse 26. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice this, that he might sanctify her, cleanse, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Don't you hear what that means, men in this room that are husbands or want one day to be a husband? This is a weighty responsibility to be the model of Christ to your spouse. See, husbands, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for what was the reason behind the giving of himself and suffering, the servant that Jesus was and literally laying his life down. What What was accomplished through that? It's the so that in verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Listen, let me ask you this question. 
What would it look like for you to stand before the throne of God, with, say with your spouse there? Your spouse is standing right beside you, and you're there standing before the throne of God, and God looks at you and He says, well done. I can't help but think as He looks at you and says, well done, if you've followed Him and given your life and laid down your life, and you've been in a committed relationship to help, to be able to stand there with a smile on your face as, a, as the bride of your, of your husband or the, the spouse of, <clears throat> of, your, or of your wife, and you're looking at this person with such wonder and amazement that God is lavishing himself on this person, accepting them into relationship with him and for eternity be with him, to be presented to God in this way, and to not think that I got to play a part in that. That God uses a spouse to spur that person to live for Christ. To stand and be presented to God in this way as Jesus does his church. You see, marriage is a means of spiritual growth. All these blind spots, all these areas of sin and, and wandering hearts. How God uses your spouse to wake you up, open your eyes, the companionship, the friendship level. You see, but this also means we ought to be concerned for the spiritual well-being of our spouses. Like, it's a role. You have a role to play in their spiritual journey. You talk about the gospel. You read scripture for yourself, and you talk about it in the home. You care for their souls. You see, this is so important that Tim Keller says it this way. He says, what keeps the marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. You're committed to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatness and perfection. You're committed to her honesty and and passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse. Any lesser goal than that, any smaller purpose, and you're just playing at being married. This isn't just for fun. Yes, God gifts us with joys and laughter. And and it's his desire to gift you with children in your home and to bless you in these different ways. These are all blessings and gifts of of God. Yes, we live in a broken and cursed world where sometimes there is infertility and sometimes there is brokenness and there's divorce and all these things. But that is not God's design. His design is for a covenant relationship. A lasting relationship where there's mutual growth and mutual pursuit. Listen, you might be like, I don't even know what it looks like to disciple someone. I mean, start with reading your Bible. And then start with talking about it. Amanda and I, when we were in college, we would sit. There's a bench we wish was still there. I think if we had the opportunity, we probably would have bought that bench before they tore it down. Uh, at Clearwater Christian College years ago. There was... We would sit on this bench because neither of us had a car, <laughs> so we were stuck on campus. <laughs> and there was, it was a little bit strict of a school, it was a Christian school, and so uh, we would just sit there uh, and, you know, do what spiritual people do is read their Bible. <laughs> uh, I, we were not spiritual people, but that's what we did. And so we would sit there. Amanda had a class. They were, had to read through the Old Testament. She did not love reading, and, but she knew that she was going to have to answer this question, have I read? Uh, and, so, and so we would sit there, and we would read Scripture together on this bench. Uh, I'm not sure if we learned anything. We were too googly-eyed and all those kind of things. I'm sure it was like, I don't even know what we just read, but we were reading Scripture together. Uh, what does it look like in your home to 
whether it is reading Scripture together or talking about Scripture or talking about the things of God. We're going to talk about family devotions and those things in the weeks to come. You know, and I would really, I have to admit, I, I, I can get lax in this area. You're like, really? You're the pastor? Yeah, I can. It doesn't just come natural to be, let's all have a Bible study in the home. It, it, it sometimes feels awkward or sometimes, I, I don't know, I, it's like, I've done a lot of that all day, whether it's meeting with people, and so I can easily want to just relax. And it's like, no, this is the priority in, my, in our home. It's for our own spiritual growth. Um, I think I left it in the, in the hecticness of this morning, so I don't think I even have it on me. Um, but I'll try to tell the story as best as I can uh, from memory. Um, is uh, Wayne Grudem, who Austin and I had the privilege of uh, getting to hear speak. Uh, he spoke uh, at, Shepherd, at the Shepherds Conference this past year. Uh, he's very much in e- up in years now. He's written several books. Uh, he taught systematic theology for years at, uh, I think, Trinity International Seminary. And while, while there, um, he was probably in his, I think, 40s or so. They've been married for years, he and his wife. They had been there for years and years, but they were in a pretty hot, but also a very humid environment. And his wife, uh, had fibromyalgia and had a lot of pains. And so, oh no, sorry, they were in Chicago area up north. Um, and the cold weather and the different things uh, just really brought a lot of pain to her life. Uh, she was very painful. Going on walks even was difficult. And so one time on vacation, they had visited Phoenix and they'd gone to Phoenix. And while they were there, um, as he tells the story, um, while they were there, uh, they noticed that a lot of the pain for her was subsided in that climate. Uh, and it was pretty, pretty, pretty remarkable that they noticed, like, there was a significant difference. They kind of noticed the first time, but then when they came again, it was like the same thing happened. When they visited again to the Phoenix and Arizona, Arizona area, that, like, she didn't have nearly as much pain while living or while hanging out in uh, Phoenix on vacation. And so they went back, and so, you know, as they had had some issues in their marriage in the past, as he says, with even going to the seminary that, they, that he served at, um, he, he described how, how, um, how he had not really taken into her account as he made the decision. He kind of made the decision on his own that he really wanted to go to the seminary. And so he asked her, but he wasn't really, really listening to her in this. He was just wanting to go to the seminary and, be, and go on to, to work there. And so he did. And so I think that frustrated her like behind the scenes that he maybe didn't know for years. But in this moment, he started having a conviction as he was thinking about this passage that we're looking at this morning in Ephesians 5. And as he was thinking about this passage, uh, he came to this passage in verse, if you look at verse 33, it says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And what he thought of as he was reflecting on this verse and reflecting on like when we go to Phoenix or this area in Arizona, she feels better. And what would I do if I experienced a lot of pain in my life in, in Chicago, but yet in Phoenix, I feel a lot better? What would I do? He's like, well, I probably would try to find a way to move to that area. And so he explained how he began to research, and there wasn't really many seminaries in the area, but there was this one, I think Phoenix uh, Seminary, that was there. And sure enough, he was thinking about it. He's like, maybe we should do that. I don't know, you know, whatever. So he looked and he reached out to him and was like, hey, would you be open for me to come and, and teach systematic theology there? And Sure enough, as he tells the story, um, at first they were like, oh, I don't know, maybe there was some interest. So they kind of subsided for a bit. 
But it ended up what happening is they, they reached back and they were like, actually, we would love for you to, for you to come and uh, teach, or really to teach a very limited schedule because we now know your, the, the situation with your spouse and the difficulty that she has and the, and the time that that probably requires. We want to give you as much time for writing because that was a passion of his as well. And he's written voluminous works that, we, that I have, some of them in my library, um, on, on systematic theology and theology. And he he was thinking, man, we probably should do this. And then, when, but here's what was interesting. He goes and he talks to his wife and, and he's like, well, w- would you be interested in us moving to Phoenix? I know this would be really, because he's thinking about her needs and wanting to move there for her needs. And she's like, no, I don't, I don't really want us to go. And, and he's like, wait, wait, you don't want us to go? Because she was thinking like, you're going to miss out on what you love. You love the seminary where you're serving at. You love the ministry. So she's thinking of his needs and putting it um, putting him first as well. And then as he describes in the story, he, he eventually looks at her and she's looking at him and they're trying to figure out what to do. And she's like, look, I want to put it into your hands. You, you make the decision. I trust your leadership. And he was reflecting on these passages where the husband and the wife and how the mutual leadership and the submission of the wife, her seeking his good and what is best, but also a husband who's willing to say, I love my wife in this way that I'm willing to give up of this because I know this will make her life easier or better. That is the picture that God is giving us here in this picture of marriage. It's a mutual relationship, but it's one of growth and it's one of sacrifice. It's one of give and take. It's cherishing and loving, nourishing and helping. You see, our goal should stand before the throne of God and hear the words, well done, and think, I got to be a part of my spouse, my spouse's well done. The question is this, in your own marriages or in the hope of a future relationship, is are each of you more like Christ because you have been married to one another? See, what is currently your relationship? Are you pursuing Christ, because this is one of the main purposes of marriage, is for our spiritual growth, to reflect the gospel to the world, to endure through hardship, go through the liking stage and the not-so-liking stage, through the challenges, through the trials, through the difficulties. And I can tell you it's worth it to stay the course, to endure, and to love each other in this kind of way. What I want us to do over the next few weeks is really look at what does it look like? What are some of the pitfalls that come in our way? The the self-centeredness, the pride, and how to uh, deal with conflict and resolution. How to truly love one another and put others uh, before, um, another before ourselves. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks, but I want to really kind of give us an overview picture of this passage of scripture, that marriage is a covenant. That it's a reflection of the gospel and it's a means of our own spiritual growth and how God uses marriage in this way. So let me pray this morning as we close our time together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace, your goodness to us. Thank you for the gift uh, that it is for us, that you have given us your word. That you've given us this picture, that you've instituted these relationships, this covenant relationship of marriage. One of love of sacrifice, of putting needs of others before our own. So, Father, help us to live in light of these truths. Father, we know that the enemy is attacking the home, that the enemy wants to get a a stronghold. 
um, in our culture, the, the, the view of even what a marriage is and what is a man and what is a woman is even a question nowadays is remarkable. And what is a marriage and what's the purpose of marriage and can you just get out and in and out of a marriage and relationships whenever you want to. Father, I pray that we would look at your word for guidance in these ways. We thank you for this great passage that Paul has written in Ephesians 5 to help us understand it. So as we dig into this passage over the next couple weeks, I pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word. Help us to respond. Help us to live in light of these truths. Help us to love our spouse as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Father, help us in these, uh, in these ways. Help us to look to you. Our eyes can, can wander and drift. Our hearts can grow cold to one another. Father, as we pursue you and as we model the gospel, and we are a forgiving, gracious um, person. I pray that that would restore broken relationships and bring healing where there is difficulty. So Father, help us in all these ways, and we ask for your help in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.